Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. What's up, DBDL fam? It's Kristen Shea, and today Brad's going to be talking with Jamie Hopkins, the Director of Private Wealth Management at Bryn Mawr Trust and a leading voice in the retirement income planning space. In fact, he was named one of the top 40 financial services professionals under the age of 40 by Investment News. And as the co-creator of the American College's RICP designation, so Retirement Income Certified Professional designation, Jamie helped reshape how retirement income planning was being taught and filled a much-needed gap in our industry and ultimately by filling this gap resulted in a complete shift in how advisors help clients secure their financial futures. Personal shout out to the RACP designation in the American College. I have gone through the course. It is really, really solid if you're an advisor who serves clients who are approaching retirement, in retirement, et cetera. So in this episode, Jamie's going to share his motivations for getting into financial services and a ton of advice for advisors who want to build a winning practice that stays relevant in a very fast-paced digital world. Before we get to the show, we've got something special for DBDL listeners. We got a bunch of copies of Jamie's book, Rewirement, Rewiring the Way You Think About Retirement, and we're going to be giving every single one of them away until they're all gone. So in order to gain your copy, all you have to do is first text the number 43, not the word, the number 43 to the DBDL Insider phone number. That's 785-800-3235. We're going to shoot you a text back asking you to leave an honest rating and review of the show. And once you've done that, we'll send you a link to the details so that we can capture all your information so we can ship it out to you. So super simple. Please note text message and data rates may apply. You can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by replying stop to any message you receive. And if you want the show notes to the episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, and people discussed, you can grab those at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 43. So as always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, today's conversation with Jamie Hopkins. Welcome to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. Excited. We've got Jamie Hopkins here with us today. Welcome, Jamie. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brad. Good to see you. Yeah. Hey, I love that you just made this happen. You're like New York City hotel room experience, but hey, that's the beauty of technology and and podcasting today. So thanks for carving out the time while you're on the road. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I've been pretty used to it over the years, but I haven't been since I've paused my own podcast right now. I haven't been traveling with all my podcast gear. So when you were bringing me on Jerry rigging things, building a stand, I got the the ironing board propped up so I can get the phone up high enough. It's just the world, right? You figure out how to do things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love the commitment. So thanks for making it happen. Well, I know obviously you're no stranger to the world of finance. Probably many listening in today have, have consumed some of your content. I know you, I follow a lot of the stuff you put out on LinkedIn. I know obviously you spent a lot of time with Carson coaching independent financial advisors all across the country. So, but for those that aren't familiar, maybe just a, a brief version of this like your journey into finance, your stops along the way, and kind of what shaped you to get you where you are today. Yeah, well, that's uh, that can be like five hours. I'll try to boil it down a little bit here today. I think I'll start this way today. So, you know, my journey starts with a very early experience. And my early experience is my dad passing away. He passed away when I was eight years old. And you've seen me talk about this before. But I've got four younger sisters. Neither of my parents graduated college. And, and my dad passed away. And my mom were running a construction company together. And he passed away at a job site. And my mom had to, you know, keep caring for kids and she eventually just kept running that company and she still runs it today, you know, and she's in her late sixties, still running a, a construction company at a woman, which is pretty rare. But a lot of that built this kind of inside of me, a scarcity mindset around money. And I didn't know it at the time, right? Like eight years old, you're not thinking about how this is going to shape your future careers. But later on in life, when I was clerking in the appellate division, I went to law school, business school, ended up in the appellate division and worked on one of Bernie Madoff's cases. And what I saw there was like the opposite of what you'd want to see for somebody like my mom, right? Like you saw this abuse of the financial system, the abuse of trust and a lack of really true transparency. And a lot's changed for the better since that. Uh, But 
you, I kind of watched this opposite side and it really got me thinking like, well, where do people like my mom go for advice? I mean, the reality is a lot of people like my mom don't get advice still today, right? I mean, non-college educated construction workers don't get advice, but then it mm-hmm. sent me down this whole path of kind of trying to better understand their situation and how do we democratize advice? How do we make retirement more secure for people like my mom? How do we make sure that when we have families like where my mom and dad were, that like they have some level of advice, that they have insurance for somebody that's doing kind of like that type of work and kind of the breadwinner for a family. And that eventually sent me into this industry. I ran my own estate planning firm for a small period of time, my own consulting firm. Uh, spent seven years at American College, uh, building up programs, then about five years-ish at Carson, and now over at Bryn Mawr Trust. And, you know, my journey has mostly been about building different things that I think helps Americans have more secure financial futures. And that's really what my journey has been about so far. It's so interesting on this show. I also did not come from, you know, I, I was not the Silver Spoon kid. And uh, it's interesting how so often in finance that kind of starts this journey of like almost from from lack of and mm-hmm. and seeking to understand like how can I change my own future and journey uh, when it comes to finances. Let's go back to American College for Financial Services. Not only were you teaching, but you were also helping build programs like the RICP, different designations, things like that. So if we kind of pull out a few of those highlights. What were some of your learnings along this journey in finance of like, wow, this is kind of broken and I want to help fix it? Yeah. So going back to that journey, you know, I'm a a big proponent of education and lifelong learning. And, you know, the American College played a really important part in our profession. Dr. Solomon Hebner, who launched the American College way back in the day, wanted to professionalize really insurance at that point, if we're being honest, Mm -hmm. but financial services. And, you know, they started out by teaching at the time who was the trusted professional was the insurance agent. And so they built CLU and started training people. Now I come in 90 years after this, right. But uh, when Mm -hmm. I came, one of the things that was hitting the market, right. You go back to right after kind of 2010, I think it was 11 and 12 where we kind of started working on this was uh, that Americans were starting to retire in large numbers and everybody had ads, Hey, come to your retirement planning with us. But there really wasn't an education program that dealt with it. It feels like it existed now. Like when I talk to people in, you know, today, people like, Oh yeah, well we we're doing that. Um, CFP didn't add retirement income planning to like 2015 or 20, you know, some 2016, Hmm. like it actually didn't exist. Like we, we act like it did, but even CFP didn't teach it. CLU didn't teach it. None of the programs were teaching income planning. And so we just saw this need in the market for it. And so we built out, uh, you know, we created and built the content and launched our ICP And what was super fun about that, though, was like a highlight for me is it wasn't just teaching. Like we built all the curriculum. We built the network of people who like came together ultimately to provide that knowledge. We started doing original research. We built out a retirement income research center that's still up and operating. And then we like had to learn how to like market and sell it. Like I remember days with uh, David Littell and I actually like sitting in the office designing pamphlets, right? Because it was like mm-hmm. a team of three of us in this organization. The nice part was we kind of separated ourselves out so we could build it like we wanted to. But then the flip side was like marketing and messaging and PR. We kind of did ourselves, which was really fun because essentially like we launched our own company inside of a, a company. But that's what we mm. did, including fundraising and our PL and hiring people. And it was a blast. And that was a really big highlight. And, you know, it took off. I mean, in the kind of six years after we launched it, I think we had 18,000 financial advisors went through or signed up for the RICP in that six year period. Wow. Yeah. It's, and when you, you look at that, I mean, that was the f- most used financial advisor education program in the country during that six-year period, right? More so than CFP, more so than CLU, anything else. That was number one. And, uh, you know, it was the fastest program in the history of the college too, and basically a hundred-year firm of adoption. So we hit the market at the right time, I think with a great product and, uh, you know, great staff. You know, Wade Fowl came in later on as part of it and, uh, you know, headed up for a couple of years after I left the college. But 
You know, it's been impressive. And when you think about that, I think there's mid 20 some thousand RICPs now that have gotten that education. And then you think about, you know, 100, 200, 300 clients apiece. You've really impacted a tremendous amount of Americans, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just tremendous amount. I mean, millions of Americans now are getting advice that is better around retirement income planning than it was two decades ago. And good timing. I mean, you look at the the country's demographic, you know, the baby boomer, the aging baby boomer population. So obviously it's a huge need out there. And, uh, you know, I've kind of my my journey in finance has kind of followed that age demographic. So you went back to really looking at an at a education research based approach to retirement income. Two questions for you. If you were to pick during that time period, kind of your Mount Rushmore of experts that would be on retirement income, who would that be? Mm. And then secondarily, what were some of like the big findings of like, wow, when it comes to retirement income, like people have this wrong, or this is like a pillar that should happen every single time. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, let's start with the Mount Rushmore people. And so luckily Mount Rushmore doesn't have just one person. So I'm allowed to to (laughs) cheat and use multiple people. I will say Wade was tremendously important for me. Um, I, I view him as a great friend and, uh, uh, you know, really great researcher in our space. So I definitely mm-hmm. put Wade Bow up there. I will tell you, while it didn't happen so much while I was going through the program, but uh, I think Christine Benz does one of the best jobs at Morningstar of actually, like, taking a lot of the retirement income material out there and making it really relatable to people. I would definitely say, look, at the time, Michael Kitsis was up there. Like he just, you know, if there was a guy that mm-hmm. seemed to touch every topic out there in the world, it was him. Interestingly enough, it's probably less so today. I think uh, Jeff Levine's a good friend of mine. He's probably moved up there. Denise Appleby is actually really sharp. And then I would also have Natalie Schote on there, who is probably the single most intellectual person about distribution rules that I knew. So. When I looked at like my technical skill set around retirement distributions, like her books and her work was phenomenal. But there's a lot of people like so like the interesting thing about it, even retirement income planning, it's not a giant field of experts. It's actually a pretty small group. And then the people who are really good at it still kind of own like an area like that one, like Natalie showed is really good at retirement plan distributions. But if you went to her and talked to her about like sequence risk modeling, it's not her strong suit. But if you went to Wade about sequence modeling, super strong there. But if you ask mm-hmm. Wade about IRA distribution rules, like he usually says it, he's like, I'm not as good at that. Like I don't mm-hmm. study the laws and the rules. I study the modeling and uh, that side. So but those are to me some of the best people really influential out there in this space. Yeah, I'll pause there. I mean, that's a great group of people. Uh, trying to think if I'm missing anybody that I was just is super important that I just totally blanked on. But I think that's the that's the right group. <laughs> Love it. I'm familiar. It's interesting. I'm familiar with only about half of those names, so I'm gonna have to dive in. That's why I asked the question. Okay, so let's go to before you started this six year journey. What were the surprising like? Wow. There's a lot of financial advisors out there getting this wrong when it comes to retirement income. And I, you know, I just look at like the mythical 4% rule. So maybe I don't know if we start with that or not, but, and then what are like some pillars, like regardless of client scenario, they're all going to be a little different, but like, these are like kind of some staples when it comes to retirement income planning. Yeah. Let me throw out a couple that I just saw people get wrong pretty consistently early (laughs) on. One of them was any understanding about home equity. And I will tell you, that was the one that if, um, and we did a quiz on this. I don't remember the scores, but we published it in Journal of Financial Planning. And I think it was about 50% was the average score. It was like a 10-question quiz. Oh, it was slightly less than 50%. It must have been like 48% or something, because I, I had a joke about it, which was like, if you had a room full of monkeys and they randomly guessed, they would actually outperform advisors, right? So advisors were scoring in like the high 40s on this uh, housing quiz. And that was, you know, a lot about reverse mortgages, how to use housing in retirement. And more or less, what we found out was advisors struggle in that world from the exact same misinformation that consumers struggle from, that actually there was no like 
knowledge that advisors had really a mass for retirement income planning and housing that consumers didn't have. So it was actually really disappointing. And then I ended up penning a bunch of articles about how that's a big problem that we didn't understand it. And basic things that I would say about products like reverse mortgages that you don't lose the house and title the home. And advisors just got that wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we, we put a lot of education into that side of the world. The other one, when you talk about the 4% finding or rule, I, I always bang on the drum about it's not a rule, it's a finding. You know, rules are things that that are true, right? Like it's a rule mm-hmm. that you do X, Y, or Z. The reality is that's a super limited finding based on historical data. Like that's like saying September is usually a bad month in the market. That's not a rule, right? Like on average, it's the worst month. That's not a rule that next year it's going to be the worst month. And so like even just the way that we talk about it in the industry as a rule to me is wrong. And it's kind of implied that we should follow it then. And it's Mm -hmm. not super helpful to follow. But even just understanding the details of what that really meant, and it wasn't supposed to be a distribution mechanism. It was just showing that average returns are different than kind of in retirement once you're taking distributions. And that's like all it really was supposed to show was that like you can average 8%, but doesn't mean you can spend 8%. <laughs> right, right. right. And, and we've kind of taken that to a whole different world and it's had benefits. Like I don't, I actually think the conversation around it is really good. The adherence to it from the marketplace for maybe eight to 10 years was, was bad. The importance of delaying social security and the importance of having some lifetime income in a retirement income plan were also two things that people got really wrong back then. The good news about Social Security is that message kind of caught on over the last 13 years, right? And like, mm-hmm. it actually has gotten better. It's not that there's zero pushback on it, but generally speaking, Americans, advisors have kind of in mass said, look, I know it's better to delay Social Security. Whether they all think it works in their situation, different issue. But in general, there's mm-hmm. been some more consensus on that one over the years. Once you start interviewing retirement income experts, what you do find out is almost all of them believe in some source of guaranteed income inside of a retirement income plan. And that's, uh, to me, just really interesting. When you start going through the ones that are closer to retirement, almost all of them have purchased some type of guaranteed income source, you know, mostly being annuities. But if you have enough of a pension, things like that, you might not need to go buy an additional one because essentially you did buy it, right? Like you put that money aside to buy an annuity throughout your working career. It's just a different way to approach it. Yeah. So on that note, that was one of the things I remember as, as I was young in this space, ERISA basically, and, and for those maybe unfamiliar, I'm sure you're very familiar. You might explain high level what that is, but basically it took, if you look at the corporations in America that had pensions, a, a vast majority of them pre-ERISA, and it freed them up from that responsibility to where it became more of a do-it-yourself 401k system that did not have the guaranteed income. So how did you see that shift the retirement income market? Like if you look back to the history of the US, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah. So that is super interesting. And so you had a risk that come out 1974 and 401ks weren't in it yet. And IRAs really weren't in it yet either. So they came shortly thereafter, but it kind of set forth this system of protecting Americans retirement assets. That was actually like, if you think about the ERISA, what it was really there for. And one of the interesting things that we take for granted today, which was a pre-ERISA question, was like, you go work for XYZ company. They say, hey, Brad, we're going to save for your retirement. And that company goes out of business. So what happens to those retirement savings? Mm -hmm. It was really murky. Were those assets for creditors? Could the company use them? Did they really owe them to people? Because it's kind of a promised future benefit that maybe isn't vested, isn't matured. So you didn't pay taxes on it. So it's not really yours yet. And so there was this whole debate. And so basically the government had to, at the federal level, had to step in and say, we've got to protect American retirees. And we've got to protect these promised benefits so that they sit inside pensions and 401ks that are protected. And if the company goes out of business, you don't lose these assets. And most of the time when people talk about pension companies going out of business, they were ones pre-ERISA. But post-ERISA, those essentially became mostly protected, not entirely, 
There are high-income individuals, say, like pilots, where there's been some airlines that have gone out of business, where pilots' benefits have been cut back, but they don't go to zero. It's just what the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation might cover isn't 100% of the shortfall, but typically you have to be fairly high net, like fairly high income oriented for a long period of time where you'd see any benefit come back. Mm-hmm. So they kind of created this security system for retirement assets, but inside of that, it eventually shifted the onus away from the employer and onto the employee. That's actually the big shift that's occurred even from picking investments, right? There was a long time where you didn't have investment discretion inside of your accounts. Today, most retirement accounts, 401ks, do allow for participant investment discretion to pick their own investments. So not only how to save, where to save, how much to save, what investments to pick, and most of the contributions now being yours versus an employer put the money in, you didn't put money in, they picked the investments, right? They paid for it. That has shifted. There are actually still a lot of pensions out there, oddly enough. I think since 2017, there's been more defined benefit plans set up than 401k plans, oddly enough. So you actually still see these set up with more frequency than like, you know, news media would tell you, but they tend to be smaller enterprises. So think like attorney groups, dentist groups, they tend to be professionals with high income levels that will set up cash balance plans, uh, which is a type of pension plan, to because they can make much higher contributions than you could make in a 401k. So there's still a use for mm-hmm. them, but it's more from a savings and less from a retirement income strategy perspective today. Cool. Thanks for running through that. I, I figured <laughs> you would have a take on ERISA with your background. So let's jump because you, you leave American College, you go to Carson Wealth, it was cool, like right as Triad was being born. I know we had some cool conversations around what I'm going to call, I think you call it convergence of services. I, I look at like with my background, I grew up in the insurance space and, you know, was, was fortunate enough to be in very early in what became the largest insurance broker in the US when it comes to fixed and indexed annuities. And so I saw it from this lens. And then our distribution, our advisors were like, wait, there's clients that need their assets managed too. They need life insurance as well. And so I saw it from the insurance side, this convergence happening. At Carson, you would have kind of been very responsible for more of an RIA asset management. I know Ron left LPL, kind of the BD channel to go into the RIA space. And you were coming at it from the other angle, which was incorporating insurance into more of an asset management platform. What are your thoughts? And I guess one other piece of context, like back to Arissa. Now you've got this need where people don't have pensions anymore. Mm -hmm. There is not this like kind of guaranteed fixed income sort of portion to most retirees portfolios. So it's obviously by, by trying to solve a problem, a lot of this convergence is happening. So let's just get your hot take. Like what do you got on that one, Jamie? Yeah. Well, we'll hop into this. I did remember something else. I always, (laughs) this is how my brain works, but Richard Thaler, Dr. Richard Thaler would be another Mm. all time great. You're adding him to your Mount Rushmore. Yeah, he's on the mountain. Yeah, you have a seven-person Mount Rushmore, just FYI. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, like they <laughs> there was there was plans to add another face, I think, to, to Mount Rushmore. <laughs> right? Like Love there's more spot, right? That was supposed to be built out. I don't, so Richard Thaler would have been the most excited I ever was to interview anybody in our space. Mm-hmm. I and, you know, he's kind of the godfather one of the two godfathers of behavioral finance and uh, retirement kind of coming together. So moving off of that. Uh, then I got to go work with Ron Carson. And he's, if you do an OG of advisory assets, Mount Rushmore, Ron might stand there alone. So it might be a single person mm-hmm. mountain for that one. You know, he's, he's up there. And I came into Carson at the time, really, to, to lead some of the thought leadership around retirement planning and then to start pulling these pieces together. So Aaron Wood, who is one of my counterparts over there, who I love, I think is phenomenal. Um, we started thinking about all the different services we either offered or didn't offer to the, you know, offered, but not the level we wanted to offer yet or stuff we just didn't even offer like PNC insurance, any capabilities there, a a really good insurance offering, 401k tax services. And so we really set out a roadmap to bring as many of those services to the advisors at Carson as we possibly could trust services. And, uh, you know, you, 
for a, a large part there, like we had to find good partners for these. We couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. we couldn't build all these from the ground up. And like, you know, we had those conversations. Should Carson try to build its own insurance science? Like, or mm-hmm. should we go partner with somebody? And we did have all these debates. Some of them we built ourselves. Tax services, we built ourselves, right? We hired people, we built the tech, we integrated the tech, we built it out. Insurance, we ultimately ended up partnering. And, you know, there was a joint venture set up there and it's gone well, but we had the challenge of this kind of movement that occurred in financial services where you had the IBD space that were tied together. Then you saw a big move out of the uh, broker dealer world to be more RIA. And they all kind of like threw their hands up and were like, I don't know how to do insurance anymore. Once I left, they don't have access to stuff. I'm just, I'm done yep. with it, I'm leaving, whatever. And so we actually had to like reintegrate the mindset of where insurance fits once you leave a brokerage firm. And like, how do you do this as just a regular advisor, right? Doing planning for clients and income planning. And so we did a lot of education on like how do products fit in in a non-sales world, but in a planning world and in an asset-driven world or a planning fee world. And it did take some time to get re-adoption of these products. And fair enough, there were some that were burned by it that didn't like certain products, you know, some things didn't do great. You know, Ron has talked about that before, too. I kind of had to re-educate him. I remember doing a whole, like, FIA presentation to him because he was like, I hate annuities. I don't want to use annuities here. And I had to, like, sit him down. And we, we had this whole thing. And he left it being like, wow, these things actually have a bunch of uses. And uh, yeah, so we launched uh, kind of an insurance offering inside of Carson, Carson Insurance, and uh, hired a couple people. And that's done really well. And the adoption of that's gone up interest rates going up on you know has been uh you know beneficial too to kind of have access to those products but it's a different world right there's no sales quotas a lot of times it's outsourced so the advisors aren't even really getting paid on it so we kind of uh had to you know retrain to the planning focus and then integrate that into our what we called like the proven process there at carson so how does it fit into working with the client holistically Ron and I wrote the book, Find Your Freedom, that came out last year and was a Wall Street uh, Journal bestseller. And it's in there, right? We talked about the value mm-hmm. of insurance and annuities and lifetime income and build all of that into you know our planning promise out there to consumers. So there's uh, probably went over a lot there, but kind of lessons learned were we did have to re-educate and we had to have a process that was client-focused and let people know where products and solutions fit into it to get the most out of it, right? And like, that was really important. Just saying, hey, we have this stuff was not enough, right? Like having stuff is fine. Having stuff that fits a planning process that you can show the value of and then educate on and drive adoption, that's very different. Yeah, I love that take. The example I always use because the term fiduciary is thrown around a lot these days. And it's, it's actually used more as a marketing term than it is definition of like, I'm legally obligated to do what's in your best interest, right? But the argument I will always make is access to more options, as long as like they're legally vetted, right? Like yeah. should always be a benefit to your clients. And what I saw is a lot of fiduciary advisors that if you looked at their financial toolbox of tools they could use to help their clients and to solve the problems for their clients... They were dealing with maybe half the tools in the toolbox, if that, because they had completely eliminated the insurance section yeah. um, from that toolbox. And so I've, I've just got, and part of that is like, maybe it's the technology that they were on was built for RIAs and it didn't incorporate insurance. And so it was just very clunky. Maybe it was, they never even learned about them in the distribution model that they grew up in, to your point on re-education. But if you were to like say, hey, here were the reasons that people like didn't look at all the options when it came to insurance based on your journey. And maybe it was in Carson, maybe it was other places. Like what were the reasons advisors just flat out were like, no insurance. I don't deal with that. Yeah. Look, one was misinformation, not keeping up with where the market is. So, I mean, and that includes like what the technology is like. I mean, you have people that used insurance products in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and maybe the products were fine, but the technology experience and tracking experience and bill pay experience of it is mm. so bad. You, you know, you're faxing stuff, you're getting stuff lost in the yeah. mail, things are showing up three months late. And they just said, look, like that's not my client experience. So I don't want to mm. be tied to that. 
Now, technology and service got better. And, but if that was your experience, you cut it out because you were like, look, I'm getting blamed for stuff that's showing up three months after. You know, I've had advisors say, look, I kind of stopped doing it after I had a couple bad underwriting experience because clients were blaming me for the underwriting, which I can't control. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they're mm-hmm. getting denied at one place, but then they call up somebody else and get it. And then I'm sitting around here being like, well, why can't my insurance guy get them underwritten and yeah. And so you have like small experiences like that where some advisors, if you have a big AUM book and insurance isn't going to drive your revenue, you say, well, why am I taking on risk of this like other offering that might cost me a client if it goes poorly? Mm -hmm. And so you saw a little bit of that. Insurance tech was really bad. You know, as firms tried to move more into an integrated tech stack, insurance kind of fell out, right? Like InvestNet and other places tried to build some stuff, but none of it really, I mean, I'd still say that's a hurdle today for the insurance world, right? It's like integrated tech experience in comparison to where the asset world got, it's clunky and far behind and not super integrated. So that's a hurdle. And I had another one. Oh, I, those are the big ones. And to some degree, some advisors took that path. I'd say more so in the mid 2000s, where one of the marketing and selling tactics was to sell against the insurance world, right? And uh, mm. like you can think of, I mean, there's still places that do that, right? Like yep. the sales story is we don't take commissions, we don't sell you product, we do planning. We're fee only. We're fee only. Fee only. And it's a yep. big the yep. marketing tactic. Even if you go back to the fiduciary one, I do have a statement about that because I. I think about this one less than I used to, but I I still think about it a lot. So one of the things, though, is a lot of people list that they do comprehensive advice or holistic financial advice, financial planning. I think in those situations, when you market in that manner, you do need to look at things like insurance. What bothers me when you say, hey, I do comprehensive planning, comprehensive advice or whatever it might be. Then you go in and they don't do any insurance. They don't do retirement plans. They don't do banking. They don't do tax. They don't do estate. I'm like, but like, you're not holistic then. Like you're not comprehensive. You're doing a portion of things and it's perfect. And it's actually perfectly fine and very normal as a fiduciary to limit your scope of services based on your expertise. So like doctors, while there are general practitioners, what they don't usually do is go deep into any one area. They just send you out for it and they send you to a specialist that then does it. And that's an okay model, right? Is here's all the other specialists I pulled together. Here's my insurance partner. Here's my 401k partner. Here's my tax partner. But to ignore them and say you're comprehensive is a problem to me. But if you say, look, like I'm investment management, I do investment management. I don't do insurance. There is nothing wrong from a fiduciary standpoint there because you're not telling the world that you're comprehensive. Even under ERISA, like that is actually what ERISA prefers is that you limit your scope to what you're good at. You don't say you do everything like inside of retirement plans, like a a 321 or a 338, which are code sections of offerings, like you limit yourself to that scope. And ERISA likes that. I say it like Arissa is like a, a a person walking down the street here in New York, but it could, it could be a name. Yeah, we could see somebody named Arissa. You make a good point there. It's an ethical standard as an advisor. I had this conversation with Kitsis when he came on the show. I was like, hey, like fiduciary, but what's a fiduciary if you don't offer all the solutions? And his point, which I completely agree with, was, well, if you don't do it, then you should just be real and say, hey, we don't specialize in that, but here's a referral. The problem is when the advisor's like, well, I don't do that, but do everything here instead because they don't want to refer revenue out the door, right? And so I think that's the thing, like to your point, if you're going to be a holistic advisor, be one, like actually like follow through on that promise. But if you're going to say, hey, I only specialize in this and not this, you've got to be willing to say, that's not me you know, go out the door and maybe go work with this guy. And I just think that's sometimes hard, especially a beginning advisor that needs the revenue to survive as a business. So what's your take on that one? Yeah, I think I mostly agree with that, right? I think that generally you should be open to referring business out to the world. I think ultimately that will be good for you. Now, the challenge becomes is finding the right partners to refer out to because What you don't want to do is be somebody who starts referring all your clients away and then the person you're referring to them is taking your clients. Like, look, like 
you won't exist then. So any good you were going to do the world, <laughs> like you still have to think about that part of it. And look, that's why lots of people, I don't know, I should pick on any companies, but like you just think about like there's companies that offer certain services, but you know, if you refer your clients to them, the next thing they're doing is they're trying to get your client all the way there. So then you can't partner yeah. with you have to find good partners that kind of adhere to that line. And in the insurance world, 100% those partners are out there where you can go work to them and refer the insurance business out. And they don't try to steal all the assets or steal the planning from you or commandeer the client away. So I think that that is, you know, that's definitely doable. But I understand the fear around it. But as you look at mid and large size wealth firms, including where I am now today, too, at Brimar Trust, like, the convergence of services, which is where we started this one, is occurring because it's what clients want. If you look at surveys about individuals and what they expect to receive from their advisors is they're saying, I want investment management. We do it pretty well. They say we want uh, financial planning. We do that pretty well. But then after those top two, like there's this huge gap between expected services like insurance, tax, trust. Uh, another really big one is actually business owners want business exit planning help from their mm-hmm. advisor, and it's only like 1% to 2% of advisor firms offer that type of help today. There's this huge gap in expected services and actual services delivered. And so if you're just paying attention to that, people want a service and we're not delivering it. So bringing insurance in-house, bringing tax in-house, bringing 401k in-house, bringing investment management and planning and business exit planning in-house. And what I say by that in-house is either do you, you know, do you buy it, do you build it, or do you partner? All of them work, right? So you have to find the right partners, buy it, buy it or bill it. And we're definitely seeing that shift. You're seeing in the 401k space today, that consolidation advisory firms happening to it. You've seen it in the insurance space. I think more so with partnerships, though. A lot more, uh, I'd say, RIAs and wealth firms used to have insurance in-house, and now I see more partnership-oriented in that. I don't know that I have the numbers to back that up, but I think the number of agencies has decreased. So my guess is, right, like you can kind of prove it out in that side. And then tax services, you're actually seeing that move from referrals to CPAs to coming in-house. That was the mm-hmm. one where everybody referred it. And now they said, you know what? We don't really need to refer this out because CPAs, guess what? Your business isn't worth that much, so we're going to buy you <laughs> and wrap you in here. And that's been a re- really interesting dynamic. And that's not an insult. It's just saying, look, the market yeah. is saying you're worth 2x and we're worth 9x, so we might as well bring you here instead of referring the revenue out. Well, I've seen a lot. And also when it comes to estate planning and attorneys, I feel like once RIAs or financial services firms reach a certain scale, they're like, let's stop this random referral relationship that we can't really control. And let's just, it's basically bringing the family office experience onto those that have less than 10 mil is really what's happening. One stop shopping. So I've seen a big trend in that as well. Yeah. And then the, the technology there got better too. So there's three that I really like. Vanilla has been around a little bit. Uh, Steve Lockshin's company, Trust and Estate, we used at Carson. And then I invested in a company called Wealth.com, which is an estate planning solve too. And uh, big, you know, big fans, big fans of Wealth.com. Yeah. Yeah. I love their stuff. I always tell people I invested because I get on stuff and then I just tell people how awesome it is. And I don't want people to ever think that, like, I'm just yeah. telling, you know, I want them to know, but it's a, uh, to me, uh, I actually always think that's a good thing because I'm like, it's not because I want to make an extra dollar from you using it. It's because I invested because I believe in what they do. Like, I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, I think their stuff mm-hmm. is great. I love the team there. And yeah, super impressed by it. Yeah. And they've got good style. I think, uh, is it Adam over there? Is he one of the founders? I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah. And uh, Will's over there and uh, Raphael. Well, I, and- I think it was Adam that gave me some custom shoes at Future Proof. That's why uh, I bring it up. I'm uh, like, not only do they have the estate planning game figured out, but they've got the experience game figured out too. Have you been to their website? Like, yeah, you so, know, not not recently. Okay. Well, I tell like everybody. Uh, I've told like twelve fintech providers like go to their website. I mean, their clothing, their brand, their style, um, their website. They have some of the best, cleanest marketing CX out there. Like, it is phenomenal. The problem, though, is everybody's always like, well, who built it? Who can I hire? I want my stuff to look like that. And like, unfortunately, they build it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you, you, 
Yeah, yeah, go hire a, a fur, but their stuff's awesome looking. Yeah, they do a great job. Yeah, yeah, it looks really good. Are they in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona. Oh, they're on Cam- they're on Camelback Road. I literally was just right out there. I mean, I'm literally probably I hiked Camelback right. We're probably right next to them. Well, cool. I missed an opportunity because obviously <laughs> we've got we've got a lot of independent financial advisors tuning in, and you said, hey. So obviously, Ron Carson's a legend in the business, and he's been incredibly good to me. An early mentor when I had first started out in the business, invited me up, spent some time with him, and always been obviously heavy on the asset management side, the BD side. And let's say he wasn't like to your point, like he wasn't a big FIA or back in the day they were called in equity index annuities, but a fixed index annuity, which you know you really see there's different uses, but it's you know it's become like an established piece of a fixed income in a portfolio used correctly. So I'm curious, like if you're speaking out there to maybe somebody that's like grown up on the asset management side and just maybe hasn't even been exposed to the uses and you were to say, here's why you should look at FIAs. Here's why if nothing else, you should just say, hey, should these be in the toolbox? What what would be your your kind of top two, three, four reasons? Yeah. And look, I'm probably a little out of date a couple of years now too, but what worked for us well, and you can add in here was we said same thing, that it should be part of the fixed income solution, that just in general, you look at it like fixed income and that it can be a very good bond ladder replacement strategy. So instead of using a bond ladder, you should just compare what's the cheapest way to buy income here, right? Is a cheaper mm-hmm. way to buy income by buying a bond ladder today, or is it by buying a fiat? And what we fa- what, you know, what we found at the time was it would beat out a lot of bond ladders or CD ladders just from an uh, ability to purchase income at the time, right? Like you could purchase cheaper income with sometimes better tax treatment and other things too. And then uh, uh, who did that research? I mean, uh, Roger Ibbotson had research on yeah. that, right? That showed yeah. you could the outperform in that. You know, there's always challenges to research, but we actually found that to be a very positive thing because a lot of advisors use the the bond ladder strategy for bucketing early in retirement, and it was just a different way to look at it. So that one was definitely one that worked. Um, we did have some exchanges and tax-free exchanges into FIAs too, so we would look at maybe some old brokerage products. And then the other thing was the the, the invention of kind of the the FIA, uh, the advisory FIA too, where you could bill out of it was a big change, I think, because some advisors like, look, we're not doing commission stuff, right? FIA only. Yeah. I can't bill out of them. It's a it's a headache for my clients. That that ability so we could actually bill out of them and everything and, and charge against them was was big too, of just driving adoption that the product had changed. It looks and feels more like an advisory product. Yeah. Yeah, the, the products. I mean, I've been in the industry since 07, and it's insane how much it's evolved since the early days. Uh, fun Roger Ibbotson story. I, I was fortunate enough to have him on my my previous show, and we started talking about just bonds in general and how the math works. And we were talking about basically the longest bull run in the history of bonds was for kind of that 30 years as interest rates decreased from the Jimmy Carter days, which obviously that's going to mathematically bond values are going to go up. And we talked about rising interest rates at the time. They, we were just at historical lows. What has happened now had not happened yet. And I said, I said, Roger, I said, so would like a good analogy be, you know, like if you're investing in bonds in a decreasing interest rate environment, it's kind of like being in a river swimming downstream. And if interest rates were to go up, you'd be like yeah. flipping around and swimming upstream. And he goes, oh, no, it's way worse than that. He's like, it'd be like if me, the 60, I don't know how old he was, like 60, 70 years old at the time. It's like, no, it'd be like throwing me in because we were using Michael Phelps in the analogy. And it's like, instead of Michael <laughs> Phelps swimming upstream, it'd be like me swimming upstream. And so it was just really cool to hear a guy that really cut his teeth in the, the securities world, like really talk about the power of FIAs as just fixed income in a portfolio. So that was that was a really cool moment on that podcast. Or Do you have additional thoughts just around the math and just what played out in your research? Yeah, I interviewed Ibbotson at one point too, and he said a very same thing a year and a half ago, right? And he he got very negative on the bond world, you know, I think last summer ish, and then you know bonds did dirt a year and a half ago, whatever it was, and bonds just did terrible since then, right? Like mm-hmm. he he was right about that whole aspect, and yeah, but I mean our research, I mean I would say we did more like analysis rather than research, but, you know, Mm -hmm. we were finding a lot of situations where clients were better off and we could buy income more efficiently with 
annuities, Fiat's being one, sometimes Rylas, some of the riders that were out there than we could on the bond or CD or other fixed income market. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, we really just approached it from that sense. I mean, that's one way to use yeah. it. It's not the only way. But in that yeah. use case, we would just look at that. And if we could, however, we could buy income more efficiently, if that's what the client was looking for, that's the way that we went. Now, you still have to keep the notion of like credits, rating, safety, risk profile somewhat together, because mm-hmm. sometimes I get into the argument and people are like, I can buy, I remember one and somebody wanted these like two year, like C-rated ones. And I was like, like, yes, they're better. Like, but like there is a different risk profile here. So like these are you're not like, you're like yeah, the math is better, but the company has to exist two years from now for it to matter, yeah. right? And I was like, yeah. like these are not comparisons, right? Like yeah. yes, it's better, but like we can't like that is one issue that we run into a lot of times. People compare different strategies, but it's like, yeah, like there's some jump on stuff out there that looks really appealing, but like it might not pay. <laughs> and yeah. like same thing with some other products is like you can't treat those as equivalent. So you do always have to get back to are these somewhat in the same risk capacity or like risk levels when you're doing that analysis. Yeah. I love the phrase you've used a couple times because this is another hurdle I've seen because annuities, let's just be honest, they are a product that historically has been sold. Because, I mean, you look at how did FMOs become FMOs? Insurance companies created them to educate and distribute products. Yep. And so it was really a sales mechanism. And I think oftentimes, to your point, like kind of some of this baggage that advisors carry with them, almost it's like they check it off the list before they even look at it. And what I see as like to your point on convergence, as you're now licensed to be truly a holistic financial planner, advisor where, no, I really do have all these options in my toolbox as an independent guy. I love the idea of you need income as a retiree. You don't have a pension, thanks to this little ERISA thing that happened a few years back. How can we purchase income in the most efficient way and just doing the math and letting the math sort it out? And you don't have to sell anything. You're just solving now. So I just love that transition of viewing the use of the product. And I think that's a really important one to look through as an advisor. Yeah. You know, I think the, what's the most efficient way to purchase income and you can take that a lot further. So it does go to things like, should you spend down investable assets to defer security? And the reality Mm. is in a lot of cases, that is the most efficient way to purchase income. Sometimes it'll be, you know, instead of buying a bond ladder, you buy an annuity. So those are all different ways to approach it. The other thing you mentioned, the annuities were often sold. And I I had this quote for a long time was uh, I thought that annuities were oversold and underutilized. Right. So we what I meant by that was that, you know, we the annuity industry really went hard into selling. And I think often positioned annuities in two incorrect ways. One was that they can solve every issue, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. there's, you'd get some of these pitches and it was like, you know, the, and wait, there's more and you get four free cut code. Like it was like, <laughs> yo, <laughs> and wait, there's more. And it was like, okay, to some degree, like you don't want to oversell what a product's going to deliver because yes, all of those might be benefits, but they all weren't benefits at the same time. Like you often right. have to give up one to get the other, et cetera, et cetera. And so those is kind of like overselling of the, the annuity product. And then that caused people not to use annuities enough because that tends to happen when you overly push something, people kind of back up from it. And the other thing that was a big issue and still remains an issue, I think that part's gotten better. Mm-hmm. I think the other issue for the annuity and insurance world, though, is that every company has distinguished itself in the market by saying we're different than every other product. And so when you went and looked at like the FIA world or the RILA world or the variable product, everybody had their own name to it, right? It was the income max 47 and like it was different than the other ones. And so there was really hard to do a comparison between products for a while. And I think that actually Mm -hmm. did things a really big disservice because, you know, the investment world like kind of categorize stuff together a little bit better. The stuff that got mm-hmm. adoption, target date funds and iShares. And they actually, I think, found a clearer path to all run forward 
Now, yeah, there's differences between products, but a lot of times, I mean, you'll meet investment people. I was like, ah, you know, like our product's kind of just like theirs, right? Like it's basically the same as that one. (laughs) And I thought that that created a lot of confusion for the insurance world is that we couldn't get behind simpler versions of products. That's an interesting take. Yeah. When I started in 07 as a 26-year-old, I bet there were like 10 to 12 established companies. I mean, there were obviously some smaller players, but obviously you look at the demographic of America, the demand and the need was there. And so what happens, like more competition pops up, but to your point, without a good way to sort through it all, that's one of the things getting in the way. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot at Triad right now is how do we, how do we create a true holistic financial planning process. And you've already hit on a couple of hurdles. It's the technology doesn't talk to each other. And one, you know, it's built for insurance or it's built for asset management. And two, like the siloing of kind of product offerings and product distribution. So there's a lot of hurdles, but what the advisor actually wants is an easy, seamless way to sort through the chaos, right? Like can I just call somebody and say, my client has a million bucks? How do I solve the problem most efficiently? And that's what a lot of firms are trying to solve right now, right? Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned it even right now with the firm that you're at now. You're like, hey, we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how do we solve the tax planning, the estate planning, and, and bring all of these solutions to one place. Yeah. And it's kind of how we've solved the insurance piece at Brimar Trust. Same thing, we partnered. And they don't want to be specialists in it, the, the wealth advisor. Mm-hmm. And really, Carson didn't want it either. So we built that centralized hub where all the cases could flow mm-hmm. through and they could pick up the phone and, and call somebody and say, I just need help. And like, go, go mm-hmm. help me figure it out. Like, I don't want to sort through all the different companies and ratings and products and the new version and what new rider came out. Like, I needed somebody else to do that. And, you know, that's a huge value add if advisors are going to stay in that space is that they do need that help of sorting through, cutting out the noise. And the classic term, right? We got to make the complex simple for advisors mm-hmm. and clients. You know, that's part of my job. It's definitely part of your job, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I know it is a Friday. I know you're on the road. I know. Thank you for carving out some time yeah. from your hotel room. This has been a really fun conversation. Anything we didn't hit when it comes to just finding, I want to transition to the do life side here as we wrap up. But anything we haven't hit that you think important for independent financial advisors out there to think about as we future cast finance and where things are headed before we get to kind of the do life side? Yeah, this will be kind of one of my bolder prediction pieces is I'll type two things here. Advisors need to broaden their services long term to stay relevant. And I just I think that's true. That could be a lot broader than even I picture today. Like, I don't believe it's going to land in like uh, like wellness in the sense of medical advice. Ron, who we've mentioned a bunch, right? He does believe that. I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to be that far, but uh, you know, Ron's a little bit more of a visionary than me, so I might be right. But I just think whether it's tax services, retirement, if it bill pay, family office style offerings, the world is bringing more services to the firms that are on the leading edge. And if you don't keep up with that, Clients are going to find a different home because they're, they want to have that simplicity. They want to have that ease of use of life. And we are moving to a, you know, I think there was like an experience economy for a little bit that kind of got killed and the convenience economy took over. We will pay up for convenience now. So if you can be the shop that makes it more convenient for your client, you are going to win more often than not long-term. So if you're not thinking like that, it doesn't mean you become irrelevant tomorrow, right? Client relationships are super sticky. But if you're thinking about a 10, 15, 20-year time period, absolutely, right? Like that is the, that's more of the competitive, how you lose your clients. It doesn't happen overnight in this space. Well, to prove your point, I think in 1999, Amazon was just selling books online. You know, mm-hmm. now look at them. <laughs> they allowed us to all be a lot lazier and it worked out okay for them. So yeah, I think that's a good thesis. Did you have a second point? Was there another one as well? You want to throw on there? Oh, I did say I had two, but then I got excited about that one, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, if you got another uh, one, the, throw it in. But I, I do know the other one. The other one is, which we haven't talked much about, but it's AI is kind of a buzzword, but mm-hmm. it's really getting back to technology and data. 
And firms with clean data that use technology will replace the firms that don't. I don't see AI and tech replacing the advisor, but I do believe 100% in the firms that move forward. And you don't have to be the leader, but you have to be a fast follower in this space, right? They're going to replace the ones that don't. And we'll see consolidation of the firms that aren't doing it. They'll get bought by the other ones. They will go away. And I get asked a lot, hey, I'm thinking about going to this firm and I want to spend my career there. And I sometimes warn people, I was like, that firm's not going to make it in 20 years. Like they're going to get bought by somebody. They're 10 years behind. They got no chance of catching up. They fall further and further behind every year. And I think that's really important when you think about how you build your practice, who you partner with, how you're going to build this out long term. Like you have to be tech forward. Yeah. I read a, an interesting take. Naval Ravikant, have you crossed paths on Twitter with him by chance? Naval started AngelList. In my opinion, one of the smartest humans on the planet alive today. But he talks about how leverage has evolved in the history of humanity. And he makes the point that leverage, if you look at the history of humanity, started out with human capital because yeah. you would go conquer and like bring over slaves to build things for you. And then money was invented, and that became another form. Capital is a form of leverage. Mm. And then he talked about technology. And if you're not using that as leverage, you you're not going to be you're just not going to be around long term. And so I think it's how do you apply that leverage that exists today to to better serve your clients at a higher level and a more cost efficient way, right? It just makes sense. So well, with that, so this is the Do Business Do Life podcast, and one of the things we talk about a lot at Triad is. We want to do business with people we want to do life with. It's not just a monetary transactional relationship. We actually like just want to enjoy our experiences and getting together. So I would love to hear your take, Jamie. Like if you were to, to define what does do business, do life mean for you? What is it? Yeah. Well, that's something, I don't know if anyone's given a similar answer before, but I think that business, well, when I think about business, it's the ability to to earn money and have an impact. And that, for most people, allows you to live the life you want to live. I talk about this a lot when I talk to I some I'm president and founder of Finster Foundation, a nonprofit for students that are entering our space. And a lot of times I talk to them about, like, there is nothing wrong with being wealthy and building a really successful business or making a lot of money. It allows you to have a bigger impact in the world, and it often allows you to do the things you want to do. Finances and money and currency are meant to be spent, and they're means towards an end. So whether that's spending time with kids, whether it's giving back to the food shelters or building a farm or sustainable food, like that's what business allows you to do. And that's why I have a desire to be successful in business so that I can have some of those impacts out there in the world. Bert White and I used to joke about this a lot. I mean, my main goal is to be successful enough in business so I can have fish farms. I want to own fish farms so I can like produce sustainable fish for the world. Really? Uh, that's like, a, I'm, yes. I didn't. I was not aware <laughs> of that. That's cool. Yeah. So have you started your first fish farm yet? Has this no, happened yet? I haven't, but I will tell you, I do look at land that I could put. So the land that works for it is is a lot that's like a big part of it, right? Like you can't just start mm-hmm. fish farms in your basement, like effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, but I do look at land every once in a while that would be effective for this, but I'm, I'm probably five, seven years out from having the capacity in my life to hop into that. But yeah, I would love to. And that's, but I can't do that unless I'm successful at the business that I'm also passionate about. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what land is affordable in Kansas. So when you come through looking for that first fish farm plot, like come on out, Silver Lake, Kansas, lots of land, lots of open skies. Come on out and we'll I'll give you the tour. All right. Love it. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, Jamie, really, really enjoyed our time together today. Thanks for dropping all the knowledge you have to the uh, Do Business, Do Life audience here. And look forward. Hopefully, we get to see each other before next year's future proof. So enjoy the travels in New York with your wife. And until next time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. All right. We'll see you, Jamie. Yeah. Thanks for checking out this week's episode on to this week's featured review. It comes to us from iTunes user TayTay49er. Five stars. They say, creator of Synergy, this podcast has opened up amazing insights for our firm. After each episode, I'm left more inspired and with more knowledge on transforming our practice into an amazing experience. 
Well, appreciate the kind words in the review. It's interesting, the word experience. One of the things that Triad we talk about, we actually have a list of bad words and events is a bad word. We only want to do experiences at Triad and how we define an experience. It's memorable. It's life-changing. Events tend to blend in to one another. And so that applies to whether you're hosting a conference or whether it's a client or prospect walking through your doors. An experience is memorable. And as one of our clients, Anthony says, you want to put a scratch in their record. And so I love that this podcast is making you all think differently about transforming your practice into an amazing experience. So humbled with the kind words and we'll continue right down that path. That very much aligns with what we're trying to do here at Triad. So we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.